Oh yeah. Canceled too soon. A podcast. Podcast. About TV. Television shows. That were. That were very, very short. Canceled too soon. One season or less. Oh yeah. This week on Canceled Too Soon. Baffled! Baffled! Exclamation point. Lennon Nimoy. Psychic powers. Lennon Nimoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted only one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for Crave Online and Blumhouse.com. Everyone calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic for the world. And, Shut up. And people don't call me things, <laughs> except dirty names behind my back. And uh, this week on Cancel Too Soon, uh, we're, we're reviewing something a little obscure, a little strange, a little baffling, mm. it's if act- you will. It's actually not all that baffling. Well, it's a little baffling. It's kind of weird. Uh, we're reviewing a failed pilot mm. for a television series that was going to star Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek fame. You know him as mm. Mr. Spock. Uh, this is a pilot uh, that aired on NBC. Nineteen seventy three. On January thirtieth, nineteen seventy-three, uh they turned it into a TV movie. Thought they'd see if it worked. Apparently it didn't. <laughs> uh and this is a show called Baffled, which stars Leonard Nimoy as a race car driver who develops psychic powers, teams up Type- with a rare bookseller uh-huh. to solve mysteries. Uh, and he kind of, he develops them just sort of out of the blue too. It's yeah, not, there's no catalyst for his developing psychic powers. I heard about this the plot of the story, mm. and I assumed it would be kind of like the Dead Zone, like where he has where, an accident yeah, and he has unlocks an, something in his brain. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Instead, the, one of the first things in the show is Leonard Nimoy. He's at the race car track, mm. doing his thing, driving around. Apparently, he's quite good at it. Now, le- and then, first of all, yeah. Well, hold on. Let okay. me finish the thought. And. He's driving on the race car track, and then he starts having psychic visions on the race car track, and then he crashes the car. Yeah, that's what makes him crash, in fact, is he has a vision while driving. Now, I've heard it said, I saw a documentary called Senna. It was about uh, Senna, the race car driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, famous, he, famous man. He, uh, when he drives, he sort of equated it with prayer. He, he said that there was this sort of spiritual experience to traveling so fast Mm-hmm. And so perhaps, even though this isn't addressed in Baffled, that's what they're sort of getting at, that there's something kind of weird and cathartic and psychic about driving a car really fast. Like maybe. It, it's like it's a sort of transcendent, transcendent experience. I think, th- perhaps, I think maybe they're I think just trying to make psychic stories more badass. Maybe so. We have all now this to, footage of a, of a, of a fucking mm, race car driving mm. event thing. <laughs> race. Race. That's the word I'm looking for. A race, race driving <laughs> event. Yeah. yeah good, you know, they call good them races. You're really into car driving. I'm I can sick see. today. You shut your mouth. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, like, we'll just use it. It would be mm. like that one episode of MacGyver we talked about. Uh, uh, the other y- week. Young MacGyver. No, no, we're talking about the, the episode of... We talked about Young MacGyver, but I referenced an episode of the original MacGyver where they just intercut uh, parts of the car chase from mm. the Italian job right. to add production value, <laughs> even though it's really, really obvious. Here, there's a lot of stock footage of a car chase. Mm. Of a race. Race. Wow. <laughs> drink drink some more coffee. I am out of it. Now, okay. So they're, they're trying to make uh, the psychic powers badass. And the psychic is played by Leonard Nimoy. Now, Leonard Nimoy, to audiences today, is known for Star Trek still. He's done plenty of other things. Mm -hmm. Vincent Van Gogh stuff. He was a photographer. He was a poet as well. He was a very successful filmmaker. He directed hit movies in the Star Trek franchise and beyond. He did Three Men and a Baby, which 
seems like you know kind of like this affable kind of forgettable 80s thing it was like the number one movie was, of the year it was came the number out. one movie of 1987 it was a monster uh, so and, and people still talk about it yeah it's, it's remembered it's a remake of a French film, but people still talk about the yeah. American version and, and yeah. how how Steve Gutenberg's career is gone. He he uh, uh, did a great song about Bilbo Baggins, The Hobbit. Uh, he he put out a couple records. He he is a polymath, is my point, and yeah. he is also known for Mission Impossible. And today we uh, think of Star Trek as this sort of realm of uncool and sexless people. Even with the sexier J.J. Abrams films, that's still sort of the stigma attached to Star Trek in a lot of ways. Very nerdy. And uh, so we look at Leonard Nimoy and we see stead, square, sexless Star Trek stuff. but mm-hmm. Emotionless, even. Yeah, that was the whole point of his character. You look at Leonard Nimoy and he's actually a dashing dude. Uh, you know, you see him in the stuff around Star Trek, about around the time. And this was 1973, so this is like pink, peak Nimoy. Uh, he, he's actually... <laughs> He actually did have a bit of a sex appeal about him Mm -hmm. in that sort of manly Charles Bronson-ish kind of way. Uh, So when when he sort of, he had a deep voice, he was tall, he had very striking features. Mm -hmm. Looked great in a turtleneck. It's it's difficult to, to, to see it today. But 1973 was a time when Leonard Nimoy could actually be taken seriously as a sex symbol. And, and... In this show, which pairs him, you know, there's a lot of shows which pair two detectives together, often they're male and female, to add some sort of sexual chemistry, some dynamic to it. Uh, In this series, uh, he he was going to be paired with uh, Susan Hampshire. From, uh, I know her from The Three Lives of Thomasina. But oh, was she in that? Yeah, oh, I didn't know uh, that. but she okay. she's done a lot of British movies and TV. Mostly British TV. She was in mm. Monarch of the Glen. She was in the Foresight Saga. Um, she plays the plucky paranormal investigator, the one who already knows about the existence of psychic powers and mm. ghosts and all this stuff. Uh, she finds out he's a psychic, and she enlists his help to solve this sort of murder he may have witnessed in his fantasies. Mm. We'll talk about the plot in more detail in a minute, but their chemistry together is, is great. Uh, well, she They're really great together. They're well, sexy together. They're sexy together. They actually have an attraction which they address immediately. Mm-hmm. So it would be great if this was just a couple that solves these mysteries together. I, I get the impression that they're not going like, to be the doing the premise of the show was going to yeah, be the, the implication at the end of the of the pilot is that they will they will go on more adventures. I predict they will be boning within a month. Well, I mean they kissed in the first episode. So either they were going to mm. steer away from that and give them other love interests or heck, why not just make them their own love interests? They're cute just together. Fine. They're great and i what i love is that they're both really enthusiastic mm-hmm. uh he doesn't it's he's not skeptical he's had these visions mm-hmm. he's, he's like, skeptical oh, at first he's willing to write it off as uh, i must have hit my head and thought i had a vision or something mm-hmm. but then after a while he's like no i'm having no, visions, I'm having visions to, yeah, and, yeah this matters i just have to embrace and, it and she is she's the molder she's like you have to d- develop these visions and so he actually listens to her and she's mm-hmm. excited about it and he's excited about it's it it's a respectful relationship between them which is interesting because there's an exchange they have mm-hmm. um, in the middle of the movie again he's a race car driver so even though they end up at like this haunted house for most yeah. of the story <laughs> um there's like this old Car, this like old Bentley or something, and they got, like, what was it called old girl. No, it was girly. Girly. The car has a name. The car is girly, and I half expected the car to be haunted and join them and like talk <laughs> and help like solve mysteries. My mother, the car. There. That's that doesn't happen. But <laughs> you, there cuts. There's like a scene where uh, Leonard Nimoy, because he's a he's a car freak. He loves cars. He's mm. working on girly just to like ah, oh, it's interesting. That's great his hobby, car. Yeah, and it's uh, like a car from the 1920s. So he's really excited about and, it. And uh, the character of Michelle Brent, played by Susan Hampshire, she walks up to him and she says, "Why is it that whenever men have a machine that does 
that serves them. Mm. They give it a female name. Mm. And Leonard Nimoy <laughs> says, oh, are you one of those? Uh, and then she says, women's lib? No, 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 no. I'm in, I, what was it? I, I respect all views. And I'm like, That's back up. Um, Becca, well, you you respect all views, even the ones that say you should have no rights or mm-hmm. opinions or or anything whatsoever. There, there's a I don't I, buy that. I, I see I see where they're, they're coming from though. There's there's a phenomenon of women even today that don't want to call themselves feminist because there's like baggage on the word mm-hmm. and they don't want to be considered like. Thanks to Rush Limbaugh, we have the phrase feminazi and uh. Uh, which I hate, but which is hateable. Yeah, but. Uh, the term, the, the term, yeah. f- the the idea the is term to is sort derisive of try, and it's not try to like politicize uh, feminism to the point where you have this sort of caricature of the man hating horrible Harridan right. is is any feminist and. Uh, This show is trying to have it both ways. They're trying to acknowledge that here is a liberated woman. She's independent. She has her own business. Mm -hmm. She has an expertise. She doesn't let anyone tell her what to do. But uh, it's also trying to call herself as part of the women's liberation. But I wonder how much of that's for her and how much of that is for the audience. It's mostly for the audience. I expect it's for the audience who want to be like, I don't know how I feel. Like all these asshole men, these Archie Bunkers. In their, in their easy chairs, watching Baffle going, I don't know how I feel this about her of, having opinions. This is one of those women's lib shows. Yeah, and then she's like, no, 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 no. I'm not into women's lib, except literally all of my action support that I do. <laughs> like, it's an interesting... I, I can't support it, had, it but it was, an, it was an odd scene to sit ma- Maybe had the show can actually been a show, it, we could have seen sort of that develop a little bit, but yeah. We well, it reminded me a little bit of a, a great show. We, it lasted quite a while. We will never cover mm-hmm. it on the series, but Remington Steel. Yeah. Which I'm amazed no one's remade. Because that was a story about a woman who wanted to be a successful private detective, but no one took her seriously because she's a woman. So she invented a fake private Mm. detective who's a man to whom she could be the assistant, even though she did all the work. Mm. And then Pierce Brosnan comes in and pretends to be that fake guy. He gets all the credit for doing nothing. Um. That's a great show. That's a great premise. That's a great show. You could still totally make that course, work today. And of course, you got a handsome dude like Pierce Brosnan. Oh, he's charming. Yeah. Like you, you're almost not that mad at him, but even though you have to be, like that's that was the great that was he's the great thing. Great chemistry. That's a so great yeah, show. these these two are working well together. Yeah. Uh, the plot uh, yes. is that he has these visions. He sees a woman screaming the phrase "Wyndham in Devon." And he doesn't know what that means. He just knows that's in England because that's a very English phrase. That's and a so very English thing to say. He uh, he ends up with with the help of uh, what was her name, Beth. Uh, uh, Michelle Brent. Michelle. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mich- he ends up with the help of Michelle tracking down the house he saw in his vision, and it's very House of the Seven Gables, Turn mm-hmm. of the Screw. Yeah. Dark, Big, dark gothic romance literature kind of thing. It's the sort of uh, place where you expect a bunch of British psychic investigators would dare themselves to spend the weekend. <laughs> like it's that kind of place. Lots of lots of lots of rooms, lots of mm. secret passages. Uh, and it's a, it's like a, a big manor house, but in the summer they rent it out uh, as sort of like a hotel or like mm. a bed and breakfast. So in addition to uh, the creepy older lady who, who works there, like, creepy played by lady. Vera Miles. Oh, no, no, no. Vera Miles is the uh, uh, actress. Oh, you're right. Yeah, right. Rachel Roberts plays Mrs. Faraday, the caretaker of the place. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, uh, you may know Rachel Roberts from Picnic at Hanging Rock or Murder on the Erie Express or mm. When a Stranger Calls, the original movie. Um, she plays the caretaker of the place and she rents out rooms to uh, the Italian stereotype, uh, the young lovers um, with a mysterious business, and Vera well, Miles from Psycho and Psycho 2 and The Initiation. Uh, as a famous American actress who brings her young daughter because her ex-husband has been writing her romantic letters Mm. and she's thinking maybe they can rekindle what they once had, but they get there 
and he's nowhere he's, to be found. He's absent. He's he's and that's kind of the big mystery yeah. is where, where is where he? is he? And the teenage daughter might have access to the father. Well, they, they they start looking for him, and mm. they find out he has like an elderly cousin in a wheelchair. She's and she's obsessed with Vera Miles's character uh, uh, as an actress. She's like a big fan. Yeah. Um, but the father is missing. Wife is starting to look for him. Uh, the daughter starts acting very strangely, going off on her own. And eventually, we see that she's been having midnight rendezvous with her father, uh, who's that have a lot of creepy subtext about we need to keep this our well, little and, secret. And, in, and indeed, uh, after these things, she be, begins behaving strangely, and she becomes starts becoming very sexual. Yeah, and the, they and notice it, that she's dressing more provocatively, and in the first become, few scenes, behaving a little bit more adult. She has like a stuffed kangaroo, mm. and she very mothers it. She's very childlike. And then kind of she, she, puberty hits her overnight. Yeah. And she starts wearing go-go boots and behaving a lot more she, uh, she has a stuffed sensually. Can, she has a stuffed kangaroo that they call a giraffe. Did you notice that? I did not notice that. That's weird. <laughs> it's not a giraffe. It was a kangaroo. That's really okay. weird. Um, but regardless, yeah, so that's kind of enough of a story on its own. Mm. Like, this well, could have been, like, a creepy we, it's murder, when, like gothic yeah, when, romance mystery on its own. When they go, when our investigators go to the house, it, it turns into something very <laughs> Agatha Christie and, you know, like mm. accusing parlors and all the rest. So everybody has some sort of shady deal and everyone has a secret. There's secret doors in the place and yeah, everybody's sort of like sneaking around and we have to sort of one by one winnow down the suspects in this mystery, which we're not really sure what's going on yet. But it, it's one of the flaws because figure, it's a mystery out. without like a smoking gun or a dead body. Right. They're not even part of the mystery is what is the mystery, which mm. keeps it a little vague uh, which, a lot of the time, usually, which hinders the story a lot. I usually hate stories like that, but I, I like the the main characters so much that it actually mm. sort of keeps it a little bit trippingly along. So it's actually really watchable, mm. even though you're not really sure what's at stake or what the point is for a long time. Yeah, they have a good banter together. Mm. They're really fun. There's a cute bit where uh, I guess he's a race car driver, but her driving scares him because she's just so uh -huh. dangerous. That's a cute little bit. Now this, this They're is, very flirty. Keep in mind, this is television from the 1970s, so the pace is really kind of slow. Mm -hmm. It's also... Uh, it's not Doctor Strange slow. When we reviewed Doctor Strange, that show was padded out within an inch of its life. Do Doctor Strange was maddening. This is still watchable, but you know, television in 1973 wasn't made for younger audiences yet. This was made for an older audience. The mm. kids are in bed. This is what your your parents are watching. Yeah, and uh, as as such, it feels a little bit more adult. It's not so sensational, mm. uh, even though it's still plenty sensational. Yeah. Uh, so where are we at? Okay, so they're so at the, so they're the at the manor is, house. Yeah, uh -huh. They're at the manor house. Oh. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Tom Kovac uh, is the name of Leonard Nimoy's character. He and Michelle are investigating. They're narrowing it down one by one. The young couple but, that keeps disappearing in the middle of the night. They think they're selling pharmaceuticals. Oh. Turns out they're Mary Kay salesmen. Yeah, they're they're, 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 they're selling, selling cosmetics, cos makeup. Ha! And there's a great bit where she gets to say, "Well, you know, we're on vacation, but here's my Mary Kay kid. Yeah. Can I give you my pitch?" The Italian uh, mm -hmm. whom Tom Kovac starts having. Uh, Images, flashes of him covered in blood, and he thinks maybe he's like a homicidal maniac. Turns out he's a butcher. Of course, he's covered in blood. He's a butcher. Yeah, it's yeah. cute. Um, it's someone, uh, but wait, but he's, he's up to something kind of shady, and some mm -hmm. Leonard Nimoy kind of says, like, I, "I know who you are." It's like you're going to tell anybody. You're just a butcher. I don't have to tell anybody. He's, he's yeah. pretending he's someone important on his holiday. That's yeah. the idea. Like he wants to be someone. Big, so, so he's pretending now. One of the big problems with Baffled, though, is that we spend a lot of time with all of the supporting characters having conversations away from our main characters. Yeah. Not just a few conversations where the audience is given information, but entire dramas are set up 
out of the eye and out of earshot of our mm. main investigators. If this is supposed to be staged as a mystery, <clears throat> our main characters need to be privy to a lot of this stuff. That's why it feels. And so a we lot s- like... we see it, and then later on we hear we hear that see the main characters catching wind of it when we could have had that all in the same scene. That's why it feels kind of like someone had written. Uh, like a haunted house story or some kind of creepy mystery story about a bunch of people set in a house mm-hmm. uh, and then decided, well, it doesn't have a lot of drive to it. We'll add some psychics who are investigating. And oh. we'll, and we'll like it, but it feels like they didn't adapt it very well. Mm-hmm. So it does have this sort of literary quality where we're sort of bound off and we see more information. We get a lot more of the characters. But mm-hmm. it, with with those compelling protagonists who right from the beginning we got fucking you know automobile races and sex and sexual tension and all that stuff they need to be the focus and whenever they're not i actually had to watch this twice because whenever they're not on camera with the exception of Vera Miles and her daughter, who was a young actress who didn't do a lot, but she's actually really great in this. I want to give her a shout out. Jewel Blanche. Okay. Uh, she was on like the 1970s TV series of Lassie, for example. Okay. Um, and some movie I want to check out where Dick Van Dyke played an alcoholic, like with some serious drama with Dick Van Dyke. I really want to see that. Um, like their stuff about this mother who's like starting to lose her mind. She doesn't know where her husband is. Her start, her daughter is acting weirdly sexual and um, like it's it's very odd. And the the caretaker, Mrs. Faraday, who while the daughter starts acting older and older, starts acting younger and younger. Hmm. That's kind of creepy too, and I kind of like that. Um, th- that stuff is kind of well, interesting, and, but and everything else when, is pretty just bland well, boilerplate. Also, stuff the uh, it's it's centered around psychic powers, so we have this sort of supernatural element already going mm-hmm. on. And so when we see the teenage girl sort of sneaking off to dark rooms, and her father just sort of appears and hands her like creepy amulets, it's like <clears throat> those scenes are okay too. Yeah, because that like that whole keep, plot's fine. That keeps the whole supernatural element because is he a mm-hmm. ghost? But we, I guess the point is we spend uh, too much time with the red herrings. Yeah, well, too much time with the red herrings, too much time discussing the details of the red herrings. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- the whole lives of these characters, not only do they not play into the plot, they're not terribly interesting on their own. <laughs> no, uh, they're, 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 that's it. They're red yeah. herrings. That's all they kind of are. Mm-hmm. They exist to be in the room occasionally say something that could be taken the wrong way mm. and then turn out to be doing something very innocuous. That's most, and then granted that's how a lot of mysteries work, especially like mm. small, like look, mysteries take place in a certain location. Mm. Y- you add characters to add sort of just like reasonable doubt, but you have to hide it a little bit. You have to make it seem like they're more important than they are, oh. or you have to make them thematically appropriate. Like you could have done something with, uh, that young couple, they just got married, and on their honeymoon, mm. they're also selling cosmetics because they're young and they mm. got to do what they got to do. Um, you could have potentially created some kind of parallel there between Tom and mm. Michelle, the psychic detectives, um, where maybe that sort of represents like kind of where they could be or something they need to get to or avoid. You could have made that work. Mm. They didn't. the The whole thing with the <laughs> the whole thing with the Italian butcher about pretending to be something you're not. Mm. You could have tied that in thematically to. Uh, the girl pretending to be more mature than she is, or Tom Kovac pretending to be uh, literally someone it, he's not. Yeah, they don't. They does, doesn't connect to anything. Doesn't, it's just yeah, there. and it doesn't play. It doesn't. Mm. You can tell that this thing was kind of cobbled together. You said that it was probably a chamber drama where they added the the investigators. That's how it feels. That, that, I don't know it, if that's true. Well, it, it, but it makes a lot of sense because you can tell that 
there it, it feels like two productions are going on at the same time and a lot of through a lot of a lot of scenes mm-hmm. because the tone shifts so dramatically uh it, it be, it's part mystery and then it's part chamber drama mm-hmm. and, and then there's a car it, chase uh, in yeah, the middle of it they throw a car we, chase we have in, a guy so. who's a race car driver of course he's got to get in a car chase and the car chase is kind of boring as rocks because it's, cause it's, <laughs> it's all it's like filmed a, from like really far angles it's filmed and, yeah. from really far away there's, there's not no action traffic music. yeah there's no traffic it's just one car going down a, a, a highway or like not even a highway like a dirt road mm-hmm. with like one lane and another and Leonard Nimoy's behind him mm-hmm. And then eventually he catches up to like, it, mm. and it goes on for a while. Like, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Um, Cause like you want to justify the fact that he's a race car driver. You, you, mm. That's doesn't work. Uh, to, <laughs> that was dumb. Uh, to, to be fair, this was sort of a pilot. So they do have to pad it out and kind of get, get us into the characters. And they want to add scenarios. some more action to it. They want to show more elements of what the show could have been. I yeah, grant you, it's, uh, that's they, not they, terribly they, organically. Didn't, they, they didn't have a, a, a need yet to really tighten it. Mm. So, so it feels well, really loose. And it was also, you got to understand in this era, um, mm. One of the uh, uh, things that networks would do is they wouldn't just show like a, a serialized television series. They would actually have rotating television series. They would have mm-hmm. like the mystery movie, right? Where like every Tuesday night, like at nine, there would be a mystery movie. But they would be uh, you each week would be <clears throat> a revolving door. Like this week, it's going to be Shaft the series, which is mm-hmm. a real thing, and we're going to do that. <laughs> um, or um, or they would do like the Hardy Boys Nancy Drew thing, where every week it would alternate. Mm-hmm. Um, so these kind of needed to work as a, a, a movie, as its own sort of isolated incident. And if they took off, they took off. And if they didn't, they didn't. This one just, just, just didn't. So it's got that kind of odd pacing to it. And it's got kind of trying to be bigger than its britches. Yeah, maybe so. You know? The, and, and by the time we get to the end, you expect it to really kind of ratchet up. And even then, it kind of, it, it feels well, like it kind of peters out. Well, it, it gets there's, weird, actually. There, there's, because... a scene, there's a scene that just made me laugh out loud when I saw it, where uh, uh, Michelle is investigating the back of a van. And she opens up a van, and she just sort of looks in it for a moment, and then is hit in the head with a cane by some an unseen person inside the yeah, van. Yeah, she would have seen that person immediately. She would have seen them immediately. She would have just stood there for a moment while he bonks her on the head. We just see this cane appear. It's like this Abbott and Costello moment. <laughs> got hit on the head. And, and she's knocked out and taken in the yeah. van and then rescued later. But where the plot actually goes. So mm. we've got this whole thing with Vera Miles and her daughter, which is genuinely creepy. And the whole yeah. sucking the, the, the age out, which kind of goes nowhere. Mrs. Faraday, who is in on it, and I guess that is something supernatural going on, where she is sucking uh, mm. the life out of this young girl. Using she, these, yeah, magical amulets and stuff. She just kind of freaks out, drives away, and gets in a car accident. And it kind of mm. just, that that doesn't work. I had to watch it twice because I was like, wait, what happened there? Why was she driving away? She yeah. just fled and that was, that was that. But what happens is, and it's actually, a, it's a bonkers twist. It turns out that the old, older lady cousin, the uh, paraplegic mm. cousin of the husband who invited them there, was actually a guy in drag. Yeah. And he was actually a guy who murdered the husband Mm -hmm. and brought the daughter here to suck away her psychic powers because he's actually a warlock. And then he fights Leonard Nimoy to the death and Leonard Nimoy like throws him off a cliff and it's kind of bizarre and bad because this guy's in like old lady Monty Python drag like the whole time. And Leonard Nimoy throws him out a window and it seems like everything's going to be okay. And then... As they're wrapping I was, things I, I, up, I watched this like really late last night, like yeah. around three in the morning, because I was I wa- finished this after work, and I wasn't putting any of this together. It kind of <laughs> scrambles to it's, finish, like it kind like, of just rushes to get to the it, end. And, like, and, I, the last I, five and I remember like 
<laughs> Leonard Nimoy fighting an old lady in drag. I was like, what is going on? I had to go like run it back a little bit. Just and even then, I had a little bit of trouble with the ending. Just it's sort of a, putting it all together. It's a very very so, odd. Th- ending, thanks for clarifying yeah. all of this. Suffice it to say, I was, girl, if you would, if you might say, baffled. baffled. the The little girl turns out okay. Very Miles turns out okay. Mm-hmm. Everyone turns out okay except for the caretaker, she who presumably dies, but it's off camera, and uh, the warlock. Mm-hmm. who gets thrown off a cliff, and we assume he's dead, but as Tom Kovac and Michelle are saying their goodbye, they're going to go mm-hmm. off to their, uh, they, they both had a wonderful time, but it's time to go back to their old lives, he starts walking away, and he has a vision, kind of like at the end of young Sherlock Holmes, where he sees the warlock mm-hmm. like in a French airport impersonating a blind person. Yeah. And he's got like the medallion uh, on and everything, and he realizes, oh another, shit, he's another, alive. And another one of the characters catches up with him, so they're, kinda, they're still like kind of, yeah. It's a little weird and vague. But suffice to say, the guy's clearly alive. Mm-hmm. So he goes up to Michelle and just says, "We got to go to Paris right now." Mm-hmm. And the implication is they're gonna yeah, they're gonna the keep series, tracking yeah. this guy down and they're gonna keep fighting warlocks and it's uh, it's gonna be pretty kooky and sexy. Well, and and I like the I like the treatment of the paranormal in Baffled. Hmm. Like the way uh, it's and, filmed, and, or because well, I like the way it's filmed. Actually. I like it's the way it's filmed, where he where done. he has visions and he just sort of like squints off into the distance, and we see his point of view, and we get these sort of blurry clips and snippets. There's and, a clever, but bit. it's not this sort of. It's not so vague that a viewer can't also figure it out. There's actually one really cool um, and cinematic one they do early on, where he's in his hotel room and he thinks the whole psychic vision thing. He doesn't believe it yet, mm. and he was looking out at the distance, like over a cityscape, and it's obviously a matte painting, but whatever. You're letting, <laughs> you're letting it go. It's TV. Mm. Uh, and then he walks away, the camera just sort of turns over, and then he walks back, and the camera pans back over to the window, and now the window is of that British manor house at a different time of day. Uh-huh. It's actually very effective. Like It's, it's simple, it's but really it's very cool. jarring, and it looks great. He yeah. has a, he has a psychic vision where he falls into a body of water, and uh, when he wakes up, he's wet, and he Soaking figures... Wet. He figures, oh, well, maybe I just fell in the shower, but then he realizes he was covered in salt water, so I think that was really cool, but yeah. I like... I mean, clearly this show wasn't going for flash. They weren't trying to make, like, the the uh, psychic visions, this big sort of special effects bonanza. Mm-hmm. They were trying to sort of fold it in and make it seem a little bit more ordinary. And I really appreciate that because it, it makes it seem... Plausible? Uh, yeah, more plausible in a way. Uh, yeah. You know, if, if this is going to continue into a series... The psychic powers should be sort of the icing on the cake rather than the the highlight of the show. It's also not. And it's uh, also something you want to be able to use all the time without it being too expensive. So you don't mm. want to shoot your wad, you know, yeah, I and mean, exactly. get people set up like it's like in Battlestar Galactica mm. when they did this big mini series, and the mini series was so expensive, and then it had less money to do the show. They ended up reusing a lot of the same footage, mm. you know, of like the space battles and stuff like yeah, that because yeah. they can't afford to do them every week. <laughs> like it's expensive, so, but yeah, like week after week, it it would seem. <laughs> It would also make sure his psychic powers are still kind of mysterious and kind, and it's called baffled, so it should be kind of baffling each time he uses it. And to be fair, it's Rather, baffled with an exclamation point, so it's baffled, baffled, baffled which makes it sound like a musical. Baffled, uh, <laughs> baffled the musical. Baffled. Uh, so, uh, so you know, continuing on this sort of tack of making it seem a little bit more adult mm. uh, is a great way to sort of. Have a show with psychic powers, which is you know a genre conceit, but rather than have it be a like a sci-fi or a fantasy show, it's a mystery show yeah. with a, a single fantasy element, which approaches it more into the realm of magical realism rather than just straight out fantasy. Which is weird because you would think um, this whole idea is there's a real world and then he's a psychic, but mm. then the mystery they enter into is so 
deeply supernatural. Mm. It's all about people with psychic powers and draining the power out of people with psychic powers mm. and all these occult practices. Again, the guy's a warlock. He owned like a magic shop. And uh, it's interesting because it implied that the world that Baffle was going to explore actually would be really steeped in the occult. Like, mm. I can't imagine, like, you could do episodes of Baffled if it went on, mm. um, where it's just they go into any sort of normal mystery. Mm. And he has psychic powers, and he stops at it. And indeed, a lot of shows about people with psychic powers who solve mysteries deal with that. Mm. You know, just normal, everyday murder stuff that happens to be kind of interesting. Baffled, right out the gate, said, this is a world where other people are psychic. Mm. Where other people have powers. And which is actually very uncommon for someone halfway decent, Michelle says this, for Mm. someone who is good Uh to get psychic powers. It's not the usual norm. So... When you think about where the series is going to go from here, I actually imagine it developing a little bit of a mythology. Maybe not in the way we think of it today, where it's yeah. very rich and detailed. And it's got a lot of a lot of corners, a lot of mysteries. But just in terms of like, we would probably be like a secret society that they dealt with every week. Like you know, there's yeah, like well, the, the Order of the Wolf or whatever no, that chain it, medallion yeah, thing. Keep, he had keep was. in mind, this was the early '70s, and this was sort of the height of uh, Satanic Panic. Where uh, well, more the beginning of Satanic Panic. Satanic Panic was really, but, but you know. It, we already had, you know, Manson murders and all the rest. That's so, true. um, I tend to think of more late seventies, early eighties for that, but whatever it was going on. It, it was going on. And there was this notion that the suburbs were a dangerous place. You look at Rosemary's mm. baby came out in 1968. And I'm not mm. sure if that kicked it off or was just an, ex- an example of what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, the, the sort of notion that, any ordinary city all of a sudden has Satan worshippers in it, and they're going to want to sacrifice animals right. and, and tap into the evil powers of of well, s- Satan himself. And uh, so Baffled was going to take place in that universe where the psychic powers and the Satanism and the warlocks and that kind of dangerous suburban magic was going to well, kind of rule the landscape. And here was going to be agents for good who were kind of randomly getting these messages to undo the psychic evils. That and I wonder if maybe that's part uh, of the reason why Baffle didn't click. 1973 was also the year that The Exorcist came out. Yeah. The Exorcist, everyone thinks about it again, Satanic Panic, mm. girl possessed by demons. It's got certain superficial similarities with Baffle, but there's mm. a key difference. The Exorcist, in addition to being a movie and different actors, blah, 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 blah. The Exorcist is very much thematically rooted into the idea that society is becoming more secular. Mm. And as a result, people were losing touch with spiritual realities. Yeah. That the existence of a higher power, God Mm. in a literal or figurative form, and potentially even losing our morality in the process. These were a lot of the anxieties that still go on by people who are concerned about the existence of atheism and the legitimacy of atheism. Mm. If people are atheists, what does that do to my belief? What does that do to the existence of God? Doesn't God have value? Mm. Yeah. Um, is that evil that they are atheists? Are they capable mm. of morality if they don't exist in a moral universe guided mm. by religion? These are issues that we could debate forever, but mm. this is what's going on in the mind of the exorcist. In Baffled... These people who exist on the fringe, these people who exist in this sort of supernatural world mm. uh, that a lot of other like media was demonizing at the time, are charming. Yeah, they're lovely. They're great people. And I wonder if maybe that people we, we weren't terribly receptive to it at the moment. I'm, I'm speculating, I, I, but I, I'd be curious to find out. I don't necessarily think so because you know 
Doctor Strange was about this time too, and that was also Doctor Strange was the late seventies. Also, and but, it also didn't strike. It also didn't work. That's true. It also didn't work. But yeah, yeah this notion of uh, heroes having magical powers was still sort of in the consciousness. But it was the occult, uh, very specifically. I, I suppose it was. This, but, but he wasn't a cult. He was going to sort of fight the occult, and mm. I think that's why it should have perhaps worked because mm. those fears were out there. Maybe they could the, have put occult, more of a the users on of that. the users of the occult were the bad guys in this one. They were the ones with the evil medallions and the soul-sucking powers. Hmm. He was, I just figured since she was an expert, she was part of that world. Well, she knew a lot about it, but she did not herself have any psychic powers. She just had belief and gumption. I just figured that her expertise in the occult would mm. in some way have ingratiated her. It'd be interesting to find out if she was ever, like, in her studies, mm. she ever came close to... There's, like, this backstory in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where Giles, the guy who taught Buffy all about magic and monsters and everything mm. like that, you find out that when he was younger, his... Uh, interest in the occult had actually led him to be uh, an evil warlock. And okay. he grew up and he grew out of it and he felt bad about it now, but there was a time. <laughs> when he was an evil warlock. Yeah, there was, no, there was a time. Like the mm-hmm. interest in the, you should, he looked in the abyss, the abyss looked back and he was like, cool, abyss. <laughs> Dibs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like there might've been a moment where she had a dark past or something like that and she got really deeply involved in some of this stuff and had to relate to it. It would be an interesting thing to explore in future episodes of the I, series. I, 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 the way I got it is that she was just really excited about it in the same way that Mulder is, you know, that, that this, this is all true stuff and this is fun and I have to look into this because this is the world and this is the well, world she's into. You say Mulder, uh, but Mulder was involved, we interested in all of that stuff because his sister got kidnapped. Well, that's Granted, true. that's not the same as going to the dark side, but there's think, a darkness to it. I, I don't know. I think giving these characters motivations beyond simply doing good and taking advantage of these powers they have mm-hmm. uh, is kind of antithetical to the show. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess we have it's to... It's hard s- to put an exclamation point at the end of a title and then get real super serious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's... it's. I, I think... The, the notion of delving into the backstories of these characters is not something that uh, a show, f- indeed many shows from the 1970s, were really interested in. Well, they, a would, lot do of it, the they would do it for an episode and then forget it ever happened. Uh, exactly. Or, you know, the, the whole notion of a lot of older dramas that we don't get in a lot of movies or TV shows anymore is that people arrive in films fully formed. Uh, that that they, all of their problems have been sort of taken care of. They know who they are, and now they can start making decisions and making actions based on that. They don't have to struggle through these dramas of the young people trying to figure out who they are. They know who they are, yeah. and they can just be benevolent helpers because well, that's who they are. And again, that's uh, sort of like this sort of... We talked a lot about the adventure genre, the traveling adventure genre, mm-hmm. or even something like Batman, where... Batman himself. Batman doesn't actually grow and evolve over the course of 98% of all Batman stuff. <laughs> There's just something interesting going on. You drop Batman into it, mm. it gets more interesting. Mm. That's it. And that's really probably what something like Baffled would have been. It's just, mm. they have their will-they-won't-they they flirtation, or they probably just fucking will. Who cares? <laughs> and I just want to see them make out. They're adorable mm. together. And uh, they get involved in other people's mysteries. Mm. They help. And then that's the end. Yeah. It would be a perfectly charming show. Uh, was was baffled, canceled too soon. I think it was. Hmm. I I like the premise and I like the lead characters. I think we watched the pilot and we didn't mention this. This is a, this was a two hour special. It played as a movie. Yeah. Uh, even without the commercials, it still plays like over an hour That's and a half. About ninety minutes. Uh, so. If they were able to sort of, and we talked about this on Doctor Strange, if they were able to tighten all of that into a single 
uh, one hour episode mm-hmm. uh, with like faster pacing, it probably would have been a lot more watchable, especially to modern audiences. Mm-hmm. And that's where the show would have gone. Now, Doctor Strange wouldn't have worked because it kind of stunk. But the premise and the characters were interesting enough that if you did get to sort of condense this mystery into sort of one-hour mysteries of the week instead of like a series of TV movies, Mm. I think it worked really well as a series. I think so, too. I mean, even though the the first episode feels a little padded, Mm. a little longer than it needs to be, it's still pretty punchy. Like, it's got yeah, real energy to there, it. There's a lot going on, and there's a lot of supporting characters. There's a lot of fun reveals. I want like to give... I, like we've said, the mystery didn't gel, and I think that's the, the big problem. I it, think if, if the they were The mystery needs to be set, more front-loaded. It needs to be clear from the beginning what if, the mystery was. If they set it in a one-hour episode, then they would have known what the story was going to be, how it needs to begin and end, so they would have been a lot more focused. And yeah. I think if they had a chance to go to series, then they would have had that focus week after week. That, well, that's my assumption, anyway. I, I agree. I think the show was canceled too soon. I don't know if it needed to go 100 episodes but I think it could go at least a few seasons and without yeah, running yeah. out of steam it's perfectly affable uh-huh. likable show mm-hmm. um, one thing I do want to say before we move on I don't know if we have any letters do we have any letters uh, yeah let me, let me look up All some right. of these uh, while you're doing that I just want to point out uh, this show has I think more than any other show we've done so far uh-huh. uh, the best theme music <laughs> the theme music for Baffled is great. Go mm-hmm. to like if you don't have time to watch the whole thing go to YouTube and just look for Baffled 1973 like opening credits or whatever uh huh it's a groovy tune, man. Like, it's <laughs> real. Like, ooh. Like, it's really just great. Like, it get, it's like what you want to listen to when you get up and start your day. And, you know, you're making your coffee. And you're, you're yachting. I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, <laughs> you're yachting. I don't know what people do when they wake up. I thought you were going to eat a Toblerone. Today. All right, what do we got? Uh, here's a nice long letter from Christian. Wow, that is a long uh, yeah. letter. Uh, let's see. Christian, hi, hi guys. Hi. I just finished listening to a bunch of your newest episodes. I know you asked for some responses beyond the sweepstakes, so I'll just drop you an email. Hi. Uh, one, in my last email, I didn't mean succinct. I meant to say prescient. <laughs> okay. That's Fair enough. Those are different uh, words. But ni- yeah. neither, neither word means what I was trying to say, so good job <laughs> for making sense of my error, Whitney. Okay. Uh, two, Bibbs said something in the Sam and Max episode that I wanted to pick up on. You mentioned working that anarchic spirit out of you as a child came partially as a result of your parents being teachers. I just wanted to say I had a very similar experience. I haven't seen Sam and Max, though I did play and tremendously enjoy all three of the Telltale Games series, but I think sometimes media takes this very black-and-white view of childhood and embraces it in their storytelling. There's a lot of media out there that you can enjoy as a kid and as an adult, primarily because it takes a more nuanced view of subject matter, whatever that subject may be. Pixar is very good at this. Some of the ones that we as individuals evaluate as good or bad depend on how closely we adhere to that view of what childhood, quote, should be, and that is informed by our experiences as children. Now, I say this, and I know it's not a perfect formula. There are flaws in my theory, but I sometimes think there's a monolithic view of childhood as this time of both innocence and wild, sometimes anarchic exploration of limitless expansion. That view sometimes leads to the creation of certain kinds of stories. That's fine. But the problem comes when people say, quote, you didn't like this, therefore your childhood experience was invalid. Mine is valid because I appreciated this thing. Now, you guys didn't do that, but you did reflect, I think, on the two different perspectives. Bill's recognized Whitney's experiences and just said, my parents did X, and Whitney politely defended his choices as well. You recognized each other's experiences, but I don't think that's always the case when childhood joys are discussed. That's very true. Yeah. I, I know sometimes I've 
experienced a bit of backlash when I didn't speak of certain 80s slash 90s pop culture relic in sacred relics in sacred terms. Yeah. Uh, no matter who you are, you're going to run into that occasionally well, because a lot of people did have like a common experience with a certain show. Maybe well, you didn't. A lot of people define themselves by their experiences as a child and much of the media books, comics, they're video games, really trying to bank on that. Well, they yeah. just, it becomes a part of their identity. And if you don't acknowledge that, and if you don't share that experience, they might not yeah. know how to relate to you. But I think, I honestly think that it, this starts off pretty innocently. Like, we're all just sort of joking. Like, oh, you didn't see... Like, people are like, oh, you guys didn't love Star Wars when you were a kid? Oh, that must have sucked. Like, no, you no, know it's, it's fine. You're just sort of hyperbolizing to, just to indicate how important it was to you. But then we say it so often that that mentality gets kind of normalized. <laughs> yeah. And everyone starts assuming that actually the pop culture we consume as kids is actually that important. Usually it's not. It's not. Oh, I mean, it's, that's, it's important that's... to you as an individual, but as a culture, it doesn't make you less of a person mm. if you didn't see fucking Fraggle Rock. Right. You know, like, it really doesn't <laughs> matter. Like, it's fine. Uh, he says, I think that's as reductive as saying you didn't have a childhood if you didn't play Little League or Pop Warner football. Yep. Uh, I always felt like that monolithic view ignored the very real and authentic experiences a lot of kids had. There's an image that the media portrays sometimes that childhood is supposed to be boundless, energetic, and anarchic experience. If you're not experiencing that, then you're doing it wrong, in quotation marks. Right. The real-world experiences you have, good and bad, influ influence how you approach certain kinds of media and stories. You can have a certain level of maturity that's reflected in your appreciation or disdain for certain kinds of storytelling without losing something that's inherent to your childhood. Basically, there's a way to be a child, look at something, and still say, that's childish. Absolutely, there Nothing is. about that invalidates you as a child or your childhood. So, just so we're clear, Whitney, this doesn't make your experience any less valid. Oh, well, finally, the light is shed. All I'm saying is that it was nice to hear Bibbs validate my experience while both of you had a civilized conversation about a cartoon. In its own way, it helped, and I, as always, don't know if I'm making sense here. Uh, feel free not to read that if it's too odd. Too late. Ah, uh, that's not how we work. Uh, I'm not sure how much it made sense. Three, regarding, ah. regarding continuity. Ooh. In the Doctor Strange episode, you talked about the 1960s Star Trek slash Marvel importance or wholehearted embrace of continuity, and Whitney mentioned the history that he shared of that universe. I think the thing as a lot of this stuff was coming anyway, but it was more a consequence of fandom, partially more than an, than an active one. Mm. In your Doctor Strange episode, you mentioned the shared Howard slash Lovecraft mythos. Uh, Robert E. Howard Robert and H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft. Their uh, stories had common, yeah, well, common out. One thing I've always found interesting about the Robert E. Howard story is the tale of the Miller slash Clark timeline. Uh, and he gives a link to the Wikipedia entry for the Miller slash Clark timeline. Basically, it, the Conan stories were not written chronologically. Howard wrote them looking at Conan at different points in his life, but if you read closely, you could pick up on all the clues that indicated when these stories happened in an overall timeline of the character and his adventures. Two fans did that, and Howard essentially confirmed that the timeline they pieced together was more or less accurate. This was in 1936. There you go. 1936. First of all, that's a very impressive feat to be able to do in the Great Depression. This is two years before Action Comics number one. People had more free time. We have the same amount of free time I'm now kidding, as I'm always kidding, has since I'm time kidding, immemorial. Uh, second of all, I think this illustrates something that kind of ties into my last point. There's a view of the 30s and 40s sometimes as an era of, quote, real men. 
When men weren't sitting in their rooms surrounded by toys, comic books, and video games, they were out, quote, being men. Mm. Again, this is an inaccurate and monolithic view of the past. Men and women, although I think I'm using Miller and Clark as examples, were already analyzing pulpy sword and sorcery tales. Modern fandom was coming. <laughs> oh no, it's like a truck. It was heading right for you. Uh, whether or not you feel it's gotten out of hand is a separate issue. But if fans were already looking at these texts and analyzing them in the 1930s, it was only a matter of time with the proliferation of mass media, e.g. TVs in the majority of American homes, that media and storytelling had to reflect the attention that was being paid to continuity. As technology advanced, as we came, became more and more linked, fan communities, direct engagement with creators, fanzines and conventions validated what people were already doing. I, I think it was codified in a different way in that era. Well, I, I don't think it was as prolific as, as perhaps you're making it imply, uh, dear th- listener, but... I think it was actually because you look at, like, if you look up anything involving, like, the sales numbers mm-hmm. of pulp novels, yeah, sci-fi um, magazines, mm-hmm. they were selling, like, gangbusters. But I think mm-hmm. the difference was... Um, I think it was considered kind of a guilty pleasure at the time. It wasn't like the wasn't cool the, thing to be into. It wasn't the center of yeah the conversation. There's a reason why a lot of so-called respectable authors would write for those magazines under pseudonyms mm. is because it wasn't considered cool. Mm. It was actually considered kind of like a, it's kind of you were slumming kind it of a bit. junky. Yeah, yeah. No, that's invalid actually. If you ask me, there's a lot of brilliant work being done in all those mediums, mm. but, but they a lot were seen of, as lesser art at the time. And and you. You look at it, and a lot of it is junk. It's, well, it's a not, lot of it's it is, but there are a lot valid, of brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I, I defy you to look at the work of Al Williamson and Frank Frazetta mm. and tell me it's not brilliant art. Mm. But it was right there alongside a bunch of crap, right? You know, but like it was there. Mm. You know, there were there were yeah. there was gold to be found. Yeah, looking between the stories or episodes, reading between the lines, and trying to get a deeper understanding of what these stories were about and what these authors were really trying to say about this world. Marvel and Star Trek may have been at the forefront, but if people were piecing continuity together from cheap pulps of the Great Depression, then by the time the 1960s rolled around, the audience was going to be even more prepared to dig into these stories. If the storytellers wanted to keep telling these stories and make money as a result, sooner or later they were going to have to pay attention to continuity because the audience was already doing that. It was gaining momentum, and it wasn't going to stop anytime soon. That is, however, something the audiences were doing and not the creators of the shows. The creators of the shows were concerned with a different kind of storytelling. That's true, It wasn't but- until a generation passed of people who were already doing that as fans got an opportunity to become the show runners mm-hmm. that that really kind of well, became part of the conversation. That's that true, but I'll say until this. much later. That's true, but I'll, I will mm-hmm. say this. Uh, the fans wouldn't have been able to do that if the shows didn't mm-hmm. actually work that way. Kind, kind the of math work. needed to work. Yeah. And the math mostly worked. Mostly. So it's, mostly there's always a couple of quibbles. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, wait, why do Klingons look like this now and look yeah, like this yeah. in the movies? Which they, they, they explained in Enterprise, by the way. Yeah. There's a whole ar- story arc in Enterprise where they finally explain all that I, stuff. I liked it. I preferred it when they mentioned it in, um, in uh, Deep Space Nine where Worf was just like, we don't talk we, about We it. don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. That was enough for me. All right. But uh, I, think, I think it's a relationship. I think it's a relationship yeah. between the readers and their, mm-hmm. between the artists and their audience, whatever medium mm-hmm. it may be. Well, um, we live in an era where audiences now have more domination as to what goes into movies than ever before. Uh, fan communities are so loud online and they're, they're getting so much traction in terms of ink spilled as to what the fans see and what the fans want that the fans are now essentially the ones making the movies more or less. And, uh, we live in such a, a coddled era as fans that it's difficult to even contemplate an era when that wasn't a thing. When yeah. when the creators were the ones in control and they didn't really give a damn about fans or fandom. Yeah, like I'm, uh, you have you have no right 
to the art. The, the, the fan and the, you know right to right to dictate the art. There's you don't. A, there was a docu- there's a documentary film from a couple of years ago called The People versus George Lucas, and it was all about mm-hmm. the notion as to who really owns Star Wars. Is it George Lucas, the person who made it and who owned mm-hmm. the property at the time? This was before he sold it to Disney, mm-hmm. or the fans who have created such a fervor around it that they actually have come to dominate the conversation. And that's an interesting question to ask in this era. Mm-hmm. Uh, when because it comes there is, to actually making, there's a lot going on in that conversation. There's a lot going on in that yeah. conversation. When it comes to actually making the art, the artist has final say. Yeah. And what the fans do with it is a separate conversation. But that's up um, to the fans. It's, and they get it's, to decide. It's up to the fans, but yeah. I, I'm of the, the fans don't own it. The fans are just fans of it. Right. And they shouldn't get a chance to dictate content, but they are now. Yeah. And, and I, I think, and I think uh, I a think lot really of necessary. people are really happy about that. A lot of people are saying, this is the best time ever to be a geek or a fan or a pop well, culture nerd because now you have say your conversation is being heard and people are, are catering to you. Everybody's getting what they want and everybody's really happy about it. But not every, there's a new star Wars now, but not and, every yeah. fan. I'm going to say this just as, and I know you're not yeah. disagreeing with me, but uh-huh. like, not just because you want something doesn't mean that's what's best for. Absolutely and honestly, like, not. there's a no, reason why, the, yeah. why the majority of yeah. the people who love star Wars aren't directing Star Wars movies. One, we'd have way too many and no one could ever watch them all. Uh, but, <laughs> Which it feels like we're almost there already. Right, but, yeah. but two, you're not necessarily a master storyteller. Mm. Not that everyone who's ever directed a Star Wars movie is, but like, you know, like you're, you're not necessarily, mm. the, the decisions that are made creative, like, well, why can't Boba Fett marry Princess Leia? Mm. Well, because that wouldn't work. <laughs> that would be weird. That doesn't make any sense. Mm. That doesn't function. So I, I that think, doesn't actually work. Yeah, it yeah. sounds fun, but if you saw it in, in practice, mm. you would think it was lame. Man. So there's a reason why we don't listen to all the fans, mm. because the fans aren't necessarily thinking about these things on the same level that mm. the artist is. No, that doesn't mean the artist is infallible. Of course it's not. We're yeah. critics. <laughs> We're critics for a reason. Yeah, like yeah. There's a reason for that. But anyway, it's it's a, the movie itself. I think is more interesting as sort of an example of the conversation because I don't mm. really think it comes to a conclusion. Yeah, but yeah, it, it just sort of brings up a lot it rather does. than. Anyway, we gotta, uh, uh, just on a similar note, you guys were talking about the flash. Oh, this is point four, by the uh, way. Just right. on a similar note, you guys were talking about. I'm not the flash. Uh, you. I'm just like, wow, what a long email. Yeah, uh, and, and the whole concept of how the 1990s Flash may fit in with contemporary DC television multiverse. All I can say is to watch out for that rabbit hole in capital letters. Oh uh, yeah, I see your point and I don't dispute it but the more you try to look at something like this the harder it will be to look as look at anything as quote one season the whole Tommy Westfall slash St. Elsewhere dream universe Mm -hmm. will enter into this sooner or later okay real fast people don't know what that is first off we were talking about uh, the original series of the flash the live action series from the 1990s and the theory fan theory I've espoused it myself I think it might be fun Mm -hmm. that that might be a parallel dimension to the new series of the series of the Mm -hmm. flash that everyone likes so much and if that's the case was it really one season or blah 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 blah. see here it's it's more of a fun thing to talk about than a real fan theories are more fun when they're theories when they actually get validated in the show it becomes less fun the, for me the tommy yeah. westfall thing though is something that is super fucking weird so there was this show called saint elsewhere there was the show yeah it was one of the most popular shows ever no but, okay uh, not everyone talks about it anymore. Right. there's a show called saint elsewhere it was a hugely popular television series mm-hmm. and for whatever reason they thought it'd be really fun if the show ended with like an autistic child looking into a snow globe and that's and, where and the that's... entire series took place was in this child's mind yeah now that's weird and probably very dissatisfying but it's even weirder when you realize that St. Elsewhere had crossovers with other shows. 
So all of those other shows were also in the child's mind. And all of the shows that those shows crossed over were also in the child's mind. And once you start falling down that rabbit hole, as Mm. is very accurately described here, most things are in that child's head. (laughs) Like the majority of Mm. things. Mm. Like every, I'm, I'm talking like law and order. (laughs) <laughs> is actually all in that child's head. Like, weird and, and stuff. Ho- and then Homicide by extension. Yeah, yeah and then was... the X-Files, because Richard Belzer was on both of those mm. things. Like, it's weird. Mm. So it's super fucking weird, and you're right. That's that's a We don't want to fall down that rabbit hole. Uh, you're right. Look that up. It, Look up the Tommy Westfall here, here's, theory. Here's, it's real weird. You, put, you actually brought up a very interesting point recently, that in the movie Clerks, there's a funny scene where they talk about the building of the second Death Star, Return of the Jedi. And that movie and that scene is hilarious because they're overthinking something they were never really meant to overanalyze. Mm-hmm. And your point was, now that's a living. That's what people do, yeah. is overanalyzing stuff. Yeah. So it's possible to overthink this. It absolutely is. It's fun to overthink it, uh-huh. but let's not take it too seriously. Yeah. Uh, he says, look at The Prisoner. Mm. He brings up The Prisoner's oh, yeah, there you go. I'm not the biggest fan. Oh, I love The Prisoner. Uh, but it's supposed to be all these clues that number six is the same character from McGuin's previous series. Uh, and I've heard different versions of whether or not this was intended to be one season or more. But again, I openly admit I'm not the biggest fan of The Prisoner. I see your point with Constantine. But the thing is even if he does show up on Legends of Tomorrow, that doesn't change the fact that the NBC show only lasted one season. So he's, he's making a case for Constantine on the show. We've been debating... The character I... might live on, but the continuity might live on, but the show itself did not. That show, and I'm talking about the show here, lasted one season. We've been having an ongoing debate, and I would actually love uh, for fans of the original Battlestar Galactica series, mm-hmm. the 1979 version. Uh-huh. I would love it if someone could join in and let us know your thoughts on this. Because Battlestar Galactica lasted one season, but uh-huh. then fans wanted it back so much that they brought it back as a spin-off series called Galactica 1980. Mm-hmm. A different, uh, technically a different series. But was that a continuation of Battlestar Galactica? Does that mean that the show kind of had a second series, that it got yeah. to continue the story? Is that fodder for Cancel Too Soon, mm. or, does Battle, or is Galactica 1980 simply more like a sequel series, and yeah, does well, that and, count? And they did because that we've a had lot a lot of, of debate about whether or not we can cover yeah. that show. Well, uh, I, I would say no, because if you look at something like a lot of the modern... Uh, kid properties something like pokemon or power rangers like each season had like a different subtitle and took place in a new land even though it was the same characters right. this does and predate new pokemon, that concept so, though and i think context does matter th- yeah so i th- i would say that counts as one gigantic series with sort of different sub stories within each they're mm-hmm. not all individual series but that said i'm not averse to doing a spin-off so mm. provided it's a spin-off yeah. As opposed to just continuing the story. Mm. So if anyone out there is a big Battlestar Galactica fan, OG Battlestar Galactica, mm. the original Battlestar Galactica, mm. let us know your thoughts. Was it a one-season wonder with like another spin-off series that had one season? Or was 1980 uh, a, continuation a, 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 a continuation under a different title with a slightly different perspective? We're, we're, we're not I'm gonna, very curious. We're not going to cover either the, until we suss this out. But uh, <clears throat> It's one of the ones we're really mm. having trouble with. Because in theory mm. we want to cover it, but also we don't want to open mm. the gates to too much... Uh, too many things that might not apply. And uh, there's a final paragraph that he asked not to read on the air, so I'm not going to read that's good. We are good. We're good. I got to, unfortunately, I got to, I got to go. Okay. I'm actually going to the premiere of uh, Star Wars uh, Rogue One. I'm seeing that uh, in a couple days. Fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, So everybody, we will review that on the B-Movies podcast next week. You can Mm -hmm. also listen to the B-Movies podcast reviews of La La Land and Mm -hmm. Frankalola and all that cool stuff this week. I know you're excited. Um, The B-Movies podcast is the podcast from whence we hail. We do movie Mm -hmm. reviews and so on and so forth. Um, Before we we wrap this up, uh, I would like to just give a a quick shout out uh, to the podcast. This is rad. 
Oh, they, they mentioned us on yeah, their podcast. Yeah, they gave us like a yeah. real good long shout out, like several minutes just talking about the show <laughs> and how much they like the concept. Uh, and so I want to give a quick shout out uh, to by, someone by who's way, obviously our listener. They're they're not friends of ours. We don't know them personally. Nope. They just are fans of ours. So thank you That's for cool. mentioning us. Particularly Kyle it. Clark, uh, who brought it up on the show. Mm. Uh, your show is awesome. It's the show where they talk about how awesome Rush is. They're right. Uh, so, uh, oh, shut <laughs> up. You, know you shut your mouth. R- R- Rush is great uh-huh. if you're a male of a certain age and race. Know, that's that's all I'm going to say. Band, but they're cool. All right, whatever. In any case, it's a fun I, podcast. I don't know any women who like Rush. I'll say that. It's a fun podcast, and we recommend you check it out as well. Thank you for the shout-out. We really, really appreciate that. And, uh, Kyle, well, if you're in, especially if you're in Los Angeles, come on the show anytime. We'll, we'll do your favorite uh, one-season wonder. We really appreciate go. it. Um, so next week on Canceled Too Soon, we're going to be doing Westworld. Not the new one. <laughs> Not everyone remembers this, but Westworld uh, was originally a movie direct, written and directed by novelist Michael Crichton. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there was a sequel people kind of remember called Future World with mm-hmm. Peter Fonda and Blythe Danner. It's okay. I saw that one first, actually, oh, before weird. I saw Westworld. But then there was a really short-lived TV series called Beyond Westworld. It lasted like five or six episodes. Mm-hmm. It's on DVD. You can track it down if you want. This was in like 1980. Mm. Uh, long after anybody cared about Westworld. So, and and long before anyone cared uh, and about Westworld. People started caring again. Yeah, <laughs> so the new HBO series, I'm watching it. I dig it. I have a few minor quibbles with it, but it's a pretty great show. Mm. Uh, so if you want to kind of find out the history of Westworld, where it came from, and this one little corner of Westworld that nobody talks about, next week's episode of Cancelled Too Soon is the place to go. We're going to cover Beyond Westworld. Can't we get Beyond Westworld? Uh, only after we get Beyond the Thunderdome. Okay. Uh, and, and, and Rangoon. That's right. So, uh, again, you can follow us on Twitter at CancelledCast. That's Cancelled with one L. Mm. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. It really, 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 really helps. Uh, and if you want to email us uh, about any of our reviews, you want to leave uh, uh, questions, mm-hmm. rebuttals, ideas, anything at all, we will read your letters on the air. You email us, bmoviespodcast mm-hmm. at gmail.com. That's all one word. It's our email for both accounts. Just put cancel too soon in the headline so we know which one's which. Um, and if you want to leave us suggestions for shows that lasted one season or less we can cover on the show, we literally have hundreds. Mm-hmm. It will take us a while. <laughs> we take all the suggestions. Uh, we love learning about new things. And we do pay attention to what gets the most votes. And we do for, try to get to them sooner than later. And for uh, for my own clarity, uh, put the title of the show you're writing into in the subject line. Yeah. It, it, it makes it easier to sort of – we use the one email address for both shows. So we yeah. sort of suss out. So if you're writing about Cancel Too Soon, put Cancel Too Soon in the subject mm-hmm. line. So that way we know to read your letter and not accidentally read it on the wrong show. Yeah. Uh, so thank you again, everybody. You are totally, totally awesome. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Baffled. We hope you uh, mm-hmm. are looking forward to going beyond Westworld with the both of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a wrap, everybody. That's right. See you next season. <laughs>